Hey there, film fans. I'm Jeff. I'm Dave. And I'm John. And welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we'll challenge one another to discuss movies, both new and old, with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to avoid any lazy negativity, we are making this a drinking game. That's right, motherfuckers. A drinking game. This is a positive film criticism podcast. We focus on positive positive critiques. Any negative criticism about a film or films is absolutely allowed, but you will be called out for it by hearing this fantastic sound. Drink! Which means that you have to take a drink. I'll take a drink for my little flip in there. And you at home, drink along with us. Everybody else, pour yourself a glass. Join us and give give us up for the films we love. Give us up. Give us, don't give us up. Keep listening. Give us up. <laughs> Even though we're a mess. <laughs> this is number 30, guys. This is podcast episode number 30. So number 30, and we still don't know the script. That's you right. Might be drunk. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to talk about some films from the year 2018, but first, let's send it over to John for some quick shout outs. All right. As always, we're going to give it up for our beer sponsor. His name is Carlos Barozzo. You can give him a follow on the Instagrams at CBarozzo Bar 2019. That is CBA. R-R-O-Z-O-B-A-R-2019. And as always, the music you hear on this episode and every episode is provided by the artist Dasein. That's Dasein, D-A-S-E-I-N. You can find all the music available for free downloads at soundcloud.com forward slash Dasein dash artist. Jeff, what's the next segment in this intro? My gosh, moving right along. We're going to talk more about 2018, the film Mm. year, and then three films that we decided to talk about. But first things first, we're going to send it around for some news and what you've been watching. But before we get to that, for our 30th episode, John, you want to tell everybody where you are right now? I am sitting, if you can hear a little bit of echo, in case Dave doesn't do some some wizardry with this recording, so you can't hear it. If there's a little bit of echo, it's because I'm sitting in the empty apartment in Astoria where the three of us lived together. That's right. Jeff and I went to college together, so we knew each other before we, we started living together years later. But Dave and I met randomly here, and then obviously he moved in, and uh, Jeff moved in with us. And yes, we were here for several years, so I've been moving out. It's kind of weird being in how long? Spot. How long have you been in that apartment, or how long have you lived in that apartment, I should say? I'll just say this, because I realized today, I forget every year what what month I had moved in here. This Thursday, October 1st, I will. I moved into this apartment 11 years ago. 11 in years. 2009. This wow. is basically the, wow. the De Niro, Cazal, Pacino I mean, apartment, right? Yeah, to, be, to be honest, we, we mm-hmm. thought he was going to be buried in that apartment too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, we all watched a lot of movies together. Uh, Dave had brought a, a camera and some equipment. So naturally, John and I said, hey, Dave, uh, you want to practice? <laughs> <laughs> we hear you're yeah, cheap when you're filming your roommates. Uh, yeah. Um, any favorite memories you guys want to share about the the coming to the end of the era here? Uh, I, I remember favorite memories. Uh, actually, yeah. I've, I've got a um, good one. I was actually interviewed for this uh, over Skype while I was in the snowfields of Canada um, to move <laughs> into this place. And I, so it, I kind of moved in pretty much sight unseen. It was like I just needed a room when I came back. And the the one important question that being, you know, fairly new to this whole process, I didn't ask was, is it furnished? (laughs) So I got there and I moved in and moved into a completely empty room with no furniture. And I spent the first, what, two weeks, I think, sleeping on my piles of clothes on the floor in the middle of winter before I bought myself a bed. That's cool. So yeah, first my first move into that apartment was uh, a New York Rite of Passage, living like a hobo in your own apartment. 
That actually happened to me because yeah. I bought the bed. I bought the bed from <laughs> Kale. And so I was like, yeah, cool. And then I showed up and I was like, oh, that's all I got. I got a bed, frame, and a mattress. And that was it. So I also, well, I slept on a bed, but everything else was just sort of sprawled out. Uh, my favorite memories are always the snowstorms when New York City shuts oh, down. Yeah. They shut down all the, we, it was an elevated subway. So whenever there's a snowstorm, they would, we would never have um, subway access because it would just get, you know, just destroyed with the storm. So we would just hunker down, make a huge chili or something. I really wish we didn't do a lethal weapon marathon for one of them. Um, for friends of the podcast, we did a <laughs> franchise face-off where we put about 20 or so film franchises up against one another to determine which ones were the best. And uh, Lethal Weapon did not make the list, <laughs> despite us having fucking watched it together. Uh, but yeah, I, lo- I love the snowstorms. We watched Interstellar together in a snowstorm. And oh, yeah. I forget what we watched. The next one was the big one. But Don, what about you? You have a lot, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, there are a lot. I think it's uh, a lot of funny shit happened for sure. But I mean, this is also where, uh, as they kind of already alluded to, this is where we kind of started making our movies and stuff like together. So we shot a good chunk of our first short film, Tim Shell, in this apartment, which leads me into a really good segue because things kept rolling and we're still doing this. Uh, Our recent short film is called From the Night. It is Mm. showing Thursday, October 1st at 9.30 p.m. in a virtual block in the Long Island International Film Expo. If anybody wants to go to longislandfilm.com, you can buy a little virtual pass. We are showing with you know several other shorts. It's basically like an hour and a half segment, but you can just buy your ticket and chime in for ours. I think they have the order right there on the website for you. So uh, Jeff stars in this movie. Dave filmed the shit out of it. Um, so yeah, we're really yep. proud of that. I one. was and, hoping uh, it was going to be one of those yeah. ones that went live, but uh, a lot of fuckers didn't wear a mask. So here we are, virtual. Yeah, they were uh, trying. This is one of many festivals that was trying to make it happen. Yep. I think they are, for some of their major feature films, they sho- shoved them into some drive-in blocks and they have a drive-in oh, yeah. theater rented. For, but for the bulk of their program, and they're doing the virtual stuff. So I thought that was apropos and serendipitous. I'm moving out basically the day before this movie that we all made that we're still doing premieres at the festival and it's also like 11 years to the day that i moved out of this apartment where we all met and started making films so yeah end of an era baby onward and upward Um, that's fucking awesome yeah let's keep it thank you everybody for letting us go on that personal journey all i can say is (laughs) gushing we're gushing yeah i'm always i'm just always gush along in the intro (laughs) i'm so so sad Uh, let's see I'll I'll withhold my crazy ranting this week on this next segment. Let's do let's go around the horn with Ethan. What you've been watching, Dave? Uh, I I actually uh, went a little indie this week. I was watching an indie film from 2014, Automata, um, starring Antonio Banderas. Whoa, uh, doing sci-fi, oh, um, and Melanie Griffith as well. <laughs> and uh, it's I I got about halfway through it and turned it off. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, wow, wow, yeah. I mean, it was good. It was just really, really slow. Uh, And then, of course, I'm keeping up to date with The Boys, uh, which, and I'm just going to say, everyone who's, like, doing this review bombing bullshit, just stop it. I'm I'm sorry you have to wait a week, but stop being a dickhead. I approve. Send it along, John. Uh, Yeah, I, like I told you, I finished uh, In Cold Blood, so I think last Sunday night I watched Capote. Um, still haven't watched In Cold Blood yet. I'm excited. So that's uh, Ben and Miller's first film. Philip Seymour Hoffman won for it, obviously. Helped produce it. Really wonderful if nobody's seen it. Um, who plays Harper Lee in that? What's her name? 
uh oh fuck gosh, she's, so oh, she's so good not me for an oscar Catherine keener Catherine yeah. keener of course it's just it's just wonderful uh so yeah i watched that and then i watched uh stayed with the doc train i finally watched the uh filthy rich jeffrey epstein doc series which was yeah. difficult to watch and infuriating mm. but informative as well that guy is such a secret and an enigma it's even in death it's crazy for them like trying to unwrap it and explain what happened and obviously there's still a lot we don't know but uh very engaging on netflix definitely recommend watching it and then i watched um alex ghibli's the guy who made i think he made citizen four <clears throat> he released a two feature length two-part documentary called agents of chaos on hbo max Kind of just trying to understand what happened with the politics over the past 48 years and kind of, <laughs> you know, what's been happening big mm-hmm. picture with like geopolitical stuff in the world. And then obviously concentrating mostly on Russia and America. I think almost everyone's trying, trying to, to figure out what happened over the last four years. <laughs> yeah. And it's more of that for sure. It definitely feels like this is his trying to figure it out. And there's, you know, there's some references to like Cambridge Analytica and some heart, some tangible things that they think happened. But this is a little bit more big picture. And it made some very, good points and frightening points about the state of Russia before we got to where we are at as a country in the United States that I thought gave us a very interesting context. So I definitely recommend it. Mm. If you're into politics, it was a fun watch. How about you, Jeff? Um, well, my favorite news story is that Sean Penn was seen on the set of Paul Thomas Anderson's newest feature film. It's called Soggy Ooh. Bottom and oh it stars... God. Bradley Cooper as a Hollywood insider executive kind of on the brink. It is also set in the San Bernardo Valley. If you love your PTA. So that's got to be coming out next year with Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper PTA. That's going to be awesome. Um, But what I've been watching is I, a lot of TV, I I finished recording last week and then finished season one of Broadchurch. And then I watched all of season two this week. It is not season one. I don't know why they made the choice that they, there's a, they make a choice Season one's fantastic. Do it. I actually, it ended up being a very addictive season. Really, it was it was very addicting. Um, season two, so we plowed through that. But one or two, two, both of wow. them were. But even two. I mean, once you get into it, like I'm, I'm hooked. Also, love Olivia and Coleman. More on her later. Um, and then I watched the first couple episodes mm. of this season's Pen Fifteen, which, by the way, they go to it. There are thirty year olds pretending to be seventh graders in the show. That's pretty much the whole premise that's kind of like a rehashing of what it's like to be in middle school in the year 2000 um and it's just like a gaggy broad city type like spoof on that era and they go to a kid's pool party and they do the boogie nights pool party oneer, including ending in the pool they go in the pool i literally was shitting myself and i was not there were like four people in the house watching this and i was like they're doing the boogie night shot they're doing the bo- it's going in the- i was like the camera's going in the pool they're going in the pool there was one kid who sneezed and got the mucus on his nose just like the the person in boogie nights who like has cocaine all over their nose and has to run away like it is really fucking funny so shout out to pen 15 on hulu that's great um that's good I think also, that- quick quick news flash um tenet has uh has won its fourth consecutive box office weekend with uh a whopping 3.4 million dollars yeah well that's not take fair. over the weekend yeah. that's about the cost <laughs> yeah, of, of course that they, of course they. that's about the cost of that you know shell of it at 747 that they got um yeah that's that's I want to know if we've mentioned Tenet in every single episode in the pandemic. I really want to know if we mentioned <laughs> pretty, every single episode. Pretty much. Well, yeah. Thank you, Dave, for that. I think yeah. it's time to move on. Let's go to the film year 2018, <laughs> oh, which was it, randomly dude. drawn last week by it. Dave's random year generator. 2018 will, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, 
probably unfortunately, be remembered as the year Green Book won Best Picture. But if you don't want to remember that, you can think about the box office. Um, (laughs) Highest grossing films at the box office this year include the highest grossing film of all time, which is Avengers Infinity War. Came out that summer. Number two, Black Panther. So bang, bang for Marvel and MCU. Black Panther made a shit ton of money. Let's just take another second second Yeah, second one was a big bang. Let's take... um, Take another second. Remember Chadwick Boseman? That was um, early in 2018. Mm. That was only two, two and a half years ago. So yeah. obviously, he now has a fantastic a mural on the wall at uh, the Disney as well. Then I look oh, that yeah. up online if you want. That's awesome. It's a beautiful mm. mural. Um, number three is Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, which was very close to being our redemption film of the week, since the movie was absolutely terrible. Um, the Incredible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Incredibles 2 was good and Aquaman. So you have five films going over a billion dollars worldwide. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody comes in at six with $900 million worldwide, which surprised me. I saw that movie and 900 million is a fuck ton of money. Um, Venom somehow made $850 million worldwide. I think people in China really love Venom. Um, Venom is one of my guilty pleasures. It gets better the more you watch it. I love Tom Hardy. So yeah, for sure. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. We're big Mission Impossible fans here. Deadpool 2, and then Fantastic Beasts, the crimes of Harry Potter world. J.K. Rowling. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's your top 10, obviously, pretty much with the exception of Bohemian Rhapsody. They're all some fantastical or comic book, etc. So let's get back to the awards season. You've got Green Book. You've got Black Klansman, um, A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Uh, Roma, fantastic feature by Alfonso Cuaron, mm. shot in Mexico, but sort of related to his childhood experiences growing up and the classism in Mexico City. Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, which we're going to talk about soon. Vice, another fantastic Adam McKay feature to follow up um, his Oscar-winning writing work on his previous films. You got Rami Malek surprising everybody because they decided not to give Christian Bale another Oscar, even though he deserved it. Uh, you've got Olivia Coleman with the shocker over Glenn Close. Although after rewatching mm. the favorite, we'll see. I think that might have been might have been a pretty astute observation by the Academy. Mahershala Ali wins his second acting Oscar for Green Book. Um, and then you've got Regina King, who won an Emmy last week for Watchmen. She won mm. an Oscar for If Beale Street Could Talk. Alfonso won some it's a shit. Solid Oscar year. Yeah, I mean everybody's yeah, gonna remember Black. Good, yeah, Cla- everybody's gonna remember Spike winning for Black Klansman, uh, and then losing the Best Picture to Green Book. Um, that's gonna be something that we'll talk about for a long time. But look, the, the Academy's fucked up. I don't know what to tell you about it. It's a pretty good year. Other, let, let's shout out some other movies though. Let's not get. Let's go not go down this deep dive. There were also because, uh, yeah. Go ahead. That was a really good year for foreign film as well. Yeah. Um, technically, Romo was a foreign film, mm. so that was wonderful. Um, Cold War. Was a really excellent Poland. foreign film. I gotta fuck this guy's name up. It was directed by um, <laughs> Paul Paulkowski, I think is how you say his name. And then also the German movie, which I think took it that year. It's a long one. It's called Never Look Away, directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. And uh, that movie was fucking fantastic. Yeah. If anyone has never taken a chance on that one, it won that year because everybody thought Cold War or Roma was gonna take it. And I think it swept in. Um, yeah, wonderful. Uh, yeah. Both, all three of those are definitely worth watching. So take, it was, take it was some time. Also a really good year. Watch, watch some foreign film. Like you, you walk away, yeah. you walk out like a palate cleanser. It's like, oh, right. oh, I, I saw some it's things also, I don't normally see. 
It's also, I will recommend, I'm going to push that one, actually. I'm going to recommend people watch it. I think it's very medicinal, especially for right now. It's basically set through uh, a kid that's growing up in the World War II times who is an adult, a young adult in the 50s and 60s, and he's coming of age as an artist and trying to find a way to make peace with his trauma with some kind of expression and it intertwines with his past and his life and everything. So if you're like me and this time period has been really fucking traumatic for you, this yeah. could, this could also be pretty medicinal well, and maybe give you some hope that there's still beauty there, even if it hurts. Yeah. Another, <laughs> another movie that I really like, it is a very white film. It is set in Russia and then decided to be historically accurate, but I really like death of Stalin. Obama put it on his list mm, that year. Yeah. And that's actually the yeah, reason yeah. I watched it. Uh, you got Buscemi, you got Jeffrey Tambor. Death of Stalin is really a good film. It is, it is certainly Dark not comedy, culturally yeah. appropriate with the moment that's going on now, but it is a fantastic film. And let's not... Go ahead. Let's not forget about uh, the one and only, the, the notorious RBG. She had her documentary and yeah. On the Basis of Sex came out that year. Mm. Um, let's all just bow down. Yeah. That was... What a hero. Both those movies are definitely worth watching. Um, definitely the documentary. Yeah. The, the narrative is, is, is good as well, but definitely sit down and treat yourself to that doc if you're still... Yeah. Still feeling her loss because yeah. they're both really good. And that was not that long ago those movies yeah. came out. In the same year. Has that ever happened no. to anyone? A documentary I mean, and a it, movie? It happened came to a volcano once, but apart from that, no. That yeah, the, volcano and Dante Speak. So. Wait, and I said I wasn't gonna gush yeah. about all these movies, but <laughs> I think I think some of my favorite movies of the year, documentaries, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Free Solo, I've seen three times. I think it's fantastic. And fucking amazing. Honestly, though. A Quiet Place, too. Also, shout out to A Quiet Place. But I think the best movie of the mm -hmm. year, tell me, guys, the best movie of the year we haven't even mentioned yet, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Wasn't that just like an oh, absolute oh, fucking that was, delight? That was wonderful, some wonderful, fucking wonderful, mastery wonderful. right there. All right. And yeah, I took so long to watch that. it, I almost didn't catch it at the cinema. Um, me too. Oh, yeah. And one, another yeah. one that um, you can watch it at home and you'll have a great time. But I, I was glad I saw that one in the theater it mm. was like also but not just because of like the the visual and the spectacle i was glad i saw that with a wide range of people yeah, yeah. There were people like me who were like cinephile people and there were kids and there yeah. were people who you know might only have taken a chance on it because it's in the superhero universe and everybody was walking out talking about like whoa what was that you know you could tell you yeah. were seeing something new yeah so that was very cool. You know, that now almost never happens. Sorry if we forgot any of your favorites, but for the sake of timing, I think we're ready to move on. Anybody? Yes, we are. Let's do it. All right. So let's we, fucking do we it. We are going to start out with, we're going to talk about three films. We're going to start out with Hereditary, which is fucking awesome. And if you've ever seen Midsummer, Midsummer did so well on Amazon. It came out on Amazon Prime. And I know so many people that saw it. And I was like, but did you see Hereditary? Same director, Ari Aster. He did Hereditary 2018, Midsummer 2019. And so many people are like, oh, no, I haven't seen Hereditary yet. I'm like, just do yourself a fucking favor. I, it's like, what a bang, bang, <laughs> two years in a row. Like, just fucking awesome from director Ari Aster. But we're going to talk about Hereditary first, starring Tony Collette. And then we are going to talk about a, as we mentioned a second ago, a big surprise, especially in award season with Olivia Coleman, The Favorite, starring mm. Olivia Coleman, <laughs> Rachel Weisz, and Emma Stone, which is loosely based on a true story set in the early 1700s England with Queen Anne, who was played by Olivia Colman. And then in our redemption segment, or was it really that bad? I feel like this is actually one of the better choices we have for that question. Was it really that bad? Which is Solo, the um, origin story, if you will, of the character mm. Han Solo, played by... <laughs> Alden Ehrenreich, um, also co-starring <laughs> Donald Glover. We're, we'll talk more about what happened to it. It's 
pretty, pretty mixed on IMDb and on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of critics tended to trash it, but it's we decided, brutal on Reddit. It's brutal on Reddit. <laughs> we decided we I think all of us saw it that year. Right. Probably. But now it's been a couple mm. of years. So we gave it a rewatch and we are here to let you know if it really was I, that bad or if it was pretty good I've, to give you. another. I've given it about eight rewatches. But yeah. OK, so we have Dave's answer, obviously. But <laughs> stick around for that segment of Solo. We have to get into it, though. We're going to do hereditary first. As I said a second ago, Ari Aster written and directed by. This is what he did before Midsummer, which is somehow a bigger hit, even though technically Hereditary did better at the box office. This went to Sundance. Horror films tend to do pretty well at Sundance. The cast and crew viewed Hereditary more as a family drama than a horror story. Leave that up to the interpretation. It is certainly a mystery. It is certainly dramatic. It is certainly horrifying at some parts. It is certainly thrilling. Um, the small IMDb blurb is a grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. The longer storyline is when her mentally ill mother passes away, a woman named Annie, Tony Collette, fucking goddess sent from above, and her husband, Gabriel Byrne, Emmy Award winner, son, Alex Wolf, and daughter, Millie Shapiro, all mourn her loss. That's a long sentence. So they're mourning the loss of their grandmother. The kid's grandmother is Tony Collette's mom, who passes away before the movie starts. The family turn to different means to handle their grief, including Annie and her daughter both flirting with the supernatural. Haha, horror. They each begin to have disturbing, otherworldly experiences linked to the sinister secrets and emotional trauma that have been passed through the generations of their family. I fucking stand for that, this film. I love this film. I love the blurb is about as misleading as the ad campaign that came out about it. Good, 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 yeah. good, good. Anyway, this went to Sundance. It fucking killed. A24 bought it. It made $80 million on a $10 million budget. So we stand. Who wants to go first? First things first. Are we going to Are we gonna try not to blow the ending in this discussion? No, I think we have to talk about it. Not yet. Okay. Spoiler well, well, alert. Well, well, let's hold not, on not for the, a while. Maybe let's not this second, but possible. yeah. But like we have, because that was that's one of the biggest controversies of this movie. Oh yeah, it is. we'll do it at the end. So we'll, As we'll always, there. the timing are, is in the in your episode. If you're on Apple Music, if you're on or Apple Podcasts, if you're on Spotify, you'll see in the notes the timing of the next segment. <laughs> we'll tell you when to skip. But for now, you can listen along to get you hyped because this movie's fucking awesome. Who wants to go first? Dave. Sure, why not? This got me from the very first shot. I can tell you, um, of like they come in and they they pan into the dollhouse and. The cameras just does just as a slow roll in, and the doll the dollhouse is getting bigger and bigger, and it fills the screen. And I'm sitting there with my wife, and I'm like, "Is that going to turn into the actual set?" Of course, you, of course. You and then that, it yeah. does. Someone yeah. just opens the door and walks through the door, and I'm like, "That is fucking brilliant!" Like, there's so much camera movement. It's I don't know if I'd even describe it as motivated, but it's a case of I'm going to show you what's intended for you to see. And then we're just going to shift around here and you can see what else is going on. Like they, they really kind of, they use the camera to reveal something that whether you're like in on it or whether like you're like the main character doesn't see it yet, or it's something that they notice. It's it. They use the camera beautifully in this movie. And can I also mention just to get you back to that opening shot? It's, it's beautiful. It's picturesque. It's smooth. And there's a fucking fly on the windowsill, like flying around the yeah. opening shot, which is and like, how the fuck did they train that fly? Yeah, how did they train that fly? Did that fly get its union breaks? Did they have to do? Uh, <laughs> did they pay for the extra day because of the forced call? I, I don't know. 
Sorry, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was worth it. Um, they they use a lot of practical effects in this movie as well. Um, yeah. Like I read up on some of the visual effects stuff where they were building things to accomplish what they're accomplishing. And like some of them, like the scene where the accident happens uh, right near the beginning and it's brutal and it's graphic and they ended up having to cut it short because the prosthetic they built was so convincing. They were like, we can't, we can't use this. It looks like we've just killed this person. Wow. Wow. Mm. I think that um, it's great that he, yeah, it's great that he tried to go practical as often as possible. And I think the, uh, just approaching the movie that way from like, how do we tell something that obviously has elements of horror, but we're going to try to tell it like it's fucking ordinary people. Like this is a deep, dark drama about pain and loss and suffering and sadness. And Dave, I love that you pointed that out because I was thinking the whole time, you know, I, I was in the movie. I wasn't, I wasn't conscious of it the whole time, but in reflection, I was thinking about the cinematography a lot and how that thing that you just said is so poignant from a storytelling perspective. And I, I wonder if they got there technically by saying we want the camera to feel like this. And then as they were doing it, maybe they started realizing, because I definitely realized that's what it looks like on the outside when you see a family or a person going mm -hmm. through intense pain and loss of death and really strange things that humans don't like confronting when it's happening to them. Much So when it's happening to someone else, you, you kind of have to like view it differently as someone from the outside. And every now and then, if it happens, you know, if it's your friend or a family member and you kind of peek inside at what they are actually going through, the horror of what they are actually feeling, the, cannabis, the cinematography kept making me feel like that. And I think it played into creating well, this tone. He took a lot of control of it, that. Because um, yeah, on, on, I mean, the, I on like the production crew's yeah. first day, Ari presented them with a 75-page fucking shot list. Yeah, I'm not, so, I'm not shocked. Like, he, AFI had, graduate. he had that thing <laughs> planned out to the letter. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, mm. I feel like the tone is, uh, the tone is, is implicit, but it's not just because of what he was doing um, with his acting and with all of the oh, yeah. aesthetic choices of sound design and stuff like that. The camera, the camera movement, because it moves a lot. This mm -hmm. camera is moving quite often. This is not a static drama. The way that, again, like a lot of the, you know, you, you start looking at some of the movies that inspired this, Ordinary People and things. And a lot of those uh, movies have very static cameras. So that you're watching, you feel stuck inside the house with these people who are so sad. Yeah. Whereas Hereditary, it almost, he figured out a way to kind of do the opposite. Because sometimes in horror movies, when the camera starts moving, you feel like you're being pimped out. Like, oh my God, okay, what's around the corner? I'm going to scream at this thing that's going to jump out. This moved with enough control and slowly enough mm. that if it was moving, it almost just made you feel like you could not escape what they were feeling that well, thing that was always around the corner was emotional for me it was i was never worried about the pop out that's the thing though like sometimes there was nothing around the corner exactly when they moved, except for it more was pain, just to, more just, yeah sometimes it yeah. was just to show you a plot element or just to say, but then sometimes they pan around and there's someone hovering in the fucking roof and oh yeah like there are times when you miss it and like i was sitting my, there and yeah, my, my wife yeah. was like there's someone in the background and she's standing in the corner I'm like, what? And next minute, yeah, yeah, <laughs> off sure, we sure. go. Right. And it, of course, like, some good, good and camera things. Yeah, and it, it's uh, like there was. I was playing this, uh, playing a video game called Fear years ago, and they they used the same technique where they built 
the tension and built the tension and then nothing happened. Then they built the tension and built the tension. So by the time something actually happened, you were so fucking wound up, you like run into a wall, basically. It's it's like a really, really great technique and he exercises it beautifully up until the, the climax of the film. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to stand for the, the actors here too. So just to flesh out the story to give everybody a little bit of context here. So you have Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne are the parents, right, that they lost... Um, um, Tony Collette's mom, who they said had a, had a series of mental illnesses. Now we start to divulge information here. There's a lot, there's writings and books in the items that she has left since she's passed on that include words like satany. And there's a book on spiritualism um, and letters that are written to her that say things like, forgive me for the things I couldn't tell you, but you will reap the rewards later. So is it satanistic? Is it is it um there's a lot of things that they do introduce early on but um the kids we've we've raved about this movie up until this point so you probably know enough to go and watch it so if you don't want to know the spoilers (laughs) now would be the time to skip well the kids i'm gonna stand for these kids obviously tony collette's a hero we mentioned in the podcast recently like if 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 truth in circumstances and the ability to just make things come alive are the only prerequisite to winning awards she should win oscars tony collette is is Mm. I, she she has become known as sort of this like horror voodoo. She actually said she doesn't want to do any horror, more horror films because they keep giving it to her. But the reason they keep yeah. giving it to her is because she makes the most extreme circumstances believable. Um, I, I don't yeah. know how else to say it because she also has um, delusional thoughts and she sleepwalks and so her dreams become well, that- real. So we're, we're because of that about performance, like, yeah. because of that performance, you're not a hundred percent sure until like all hell breaks loose yeah. whether it, this is all just her. Yeah, is it a dream? Is it in her mind? And 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 we're talking about at a tent the screams that come out of her mouth in this in this oh, like she should win. Dude, this the, the one scene, scream, the one yeah, scream. The, the, yeah, the, well, the scene where like the accident happens yeah. and he just drives home with the body in the car and you're just waiting for her to find and like her dead daughter and then you hear there, I'm just going to the market and you're like, oh no, yeah. and then the screaming starts and like it's just it's not even on showing her, it's showing this like right. the other kid and yeah, I was I, actually... I, I'm not kidding, I felt fucking physically ill and the by he the is, end of this yeah, shit. They played it so well. I was going to bring that up as an example of interesting choices with that camera movement. How do you show what is actually in between the cracks of these wounds mm. without actually showing stuff and popping out? That camera just moves right in on his face and they let an actor tell the story. Yeah. Right. The vacancy of what's happening. Yeah, and then the, it turns the, into the, the screaming montage. Yeah, the story and is to being let Tony told, take it. Yeah, it's being told by Tony, what they're not showing you. Yeah. If Tony was not so good, that would have been ridiculous. You would have started laughing because it goes on so long. There yeah. are three scenes that are cut together in a montage of her wailing. Yeah. But because she's so fucking sincere, you feel like you want to throw up. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. and that, that, was, that was exactly how I felt. And let's shout out these kids. Yeah. So, so Alex Wolf. If you don't know the name Wolf for for kids, there's Alex Wolf and, and his older brother Nat Wolf are huge YA kids. They had a TV show, and when they were both in their teens, um, his older brother was in films like The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Um, so, if you don't know these films, it's fine. Kids do. <laughs> Right. The kids love these movies. Um, so Alex Wolf, who's early 20s now, so he was probably like 23 when this thing was filmed. Um, he is sensational wow. in this movie. And actually, this one dramatic thing that happens, it works out really well. He's at a party and he smokes a bong rip. And I don't know why why weed doesn't get involved more in a lot of these horror movies. I mean, it did in the 90s. Scream makes fun of it. But it's usually like drinking and partying that leads to things. 
because this paranoia and this this look of like pr- of trying to problem solve while under the influence that he does is brilliant and he almost never is able to escape it for the rest of the movie he's got these this wide-eyed just like he he is aware of the of the the context the entire movie you, you feel like it's exhausting right this is the kind of performance it's not it's similar he 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 compares the Tony Collette really well, even though they have different storylines, that it just seems so full the entire time. It's fucking crazy. And then the sister, who's played by Charlie, I feel bad for the makeup they put on her because this is definitely one mm-hmm. of those roles where she probably had trouble getting work after when you rely on a, a young actress's look to carry a horror film, which it really does for 30 minutes. Would you guys agree with that? And she does. The yeah. way she looks, the clicking sound, the 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 we'll call them supernatural things that are going on through her yeah i mean you don't need they established her so well yeah and dave mentioned that a lot of the effects are practical well i would even include makeup and even include just like whispers and and little light effects that seem otherworldly that she just conveys through herself like i don't know how you would cast her in like a teen rom-com like the next eighth grade or something after seeing this film because I mean, her performance is, is hauntingly amazing. Really, it really is. So anyway, shout out to all the actors in yeah, this film. They really helped her in this film. No, I mean, you can't, you can't. Ari Aster is, if nothing, if not, if not patient. And prepared. Right? There's so much that, uh, like, like, we've talked about several, probably not enough, but we've talked about a few really uh, famous horror movies, and we always come back to the same conversation of, like, to, to make it more than a horror movie, you know, you, the performances are probably the most important part. Like you have to have yeah. people on screen that are going to create a sincerity for you so that you can actually get scared, not just wait for the next thrill of being scared. Hmm. Um, when that car wreck happens, I almost timed it. I rewound it and watched it twice. And I think it's over two minutes where it just sits on his face. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you're just waiting for it. You know what's happening. Including like, a know night know to day happening. transition. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that oh, was cool dude, too. those those cuts, uh, and it's those, not, those hard yeah, fast cuts, cuts were really is, doing it for me. Yeah. yeah, really great. But he, uh, when he's just sitting there, I don't know. There are several moments, and I thought he balanced it well too, because there are several transitions, um, especially with a couple scenes with Tony at the beginning, which when they're when they're establishing her struggle with communication with her children, which I think is also important with this movie, because they don't mm. tell you why the kids have issues with her immediately. You kind of figure it out Sorry. through side stuff. And if when you get into her character, I think they do a good job of, you kind of realize that, you know, she herself is also a little off in some ways. So you also aren't completely sure if she understands why they struggle with her. She knows the tangible thing. So anyway, at the beginning, uh, that, that monologue where she explains to her daughter about how um, yeah. it's okay if you want to cry, you know, you never cried when you were a baby. Uh, one of the first scenes with the son, it kind of happened too quick for me. But I, I mean that in a good way. Like she kind of just started talking at them. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting that he kind of balanced in the first half of this movie. Some social cues seemed to be off in the family. And like some things felt forced and pushed in the way they were talking to each other, which is how it feels when someone dies in your family. It's, it's just it, nothing feels right. You feel like you're doing things because you have to do them. It's all just so strange. And then as the movie went on and he started letting them have more time, it created this dread that I thought was, you know, essential to this film. But it never went to the weird David Lynchy trapped in a nightmare dread. It was real fucking life drama. This is horrible and you'll never escape it. You know, the funny thing um, when they, uh, they, they were like, oh, you're coming down for dinner at one point and this is after yeah. like he's killed his sister in an accident 
And I'm like, are they are they not gonna? Did they just gloss over that? Like yeah, I'm at the point where I'm like, they're quickly. not gonna deal with this. They're just gonna gloss over it. And that that dinner, that but that dinner is exactly yeah. where it happens. Like they left, they wrote it perfectly to the point where you're like, are they not gonna deal with this? And then it just explodes, yeah. right but, at the point right, so when you're asking example, the question. Though, I, I'm not gonna lie. When I was reading that, and I'm sure. Of course, whenever you're writing a screenplay, of course you're thinking, "I want the best actors in the world." Of course, you need great, you need great actors. You always, always, always do. But that is a scene that is a perfect example. If she was not so good, mm. I think that scene would have seemed like, yeah, while they really definitely. needed a scene where they can explode at each other, but because she surprises, yeah. she surprises the actor yeah. Alex Wolf yeah. when she really launches. It's way more than he was expecting, and it's yeah. so obvious, and she won't stop. She, it's, it just won't quit. So that when it finally gets there, I, and when like, she finally sits down, and Alex, he, can't, he yeah. makes that one more line, and Gabriel Brim finally says, stop it. Like, he, you needed someone to tell them to yeah. stop this. Like, please, this is getting, we're going to hurt each other. It was very effective. I was, I was, was very gone. Effective. There were no actors yeah. in that scene for me. It was like, the, uh, these are people yeah. having an argument yeah, over she, dinner over something absolutely fucking terrible. Didn't and she it, sit down and like take a bite of something? She started like just shuffling like, her food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But oh, like oh. even the dramatic scenes are as yeah. tense as the horror scenes in this. And it, it's because of masterful performances by the, like the entire cast. And yeah, okay. you're gushing. Good. Let's all gush. Let's all gush. About this. <laughs> this, this is for, for everyone. Us. This is this for all of us. Everyone. We haven't had a. If we don't have a buzzer, if we don't have a buzzer for five minutes, I want to I want to get a little critical in a moment, but I'll say this about Ari Aster. I've watched a few interviews with him now over the years. Um, I think you can tell immediately from watching this and Midsommar, of course, but he claims that he did not think of either of these movies as horror movies and that he doesn't really like thinking mm. about genre. Yeah, it's kind of bullshit, but so but like, I of course it. you're like, all right, well, you're, you're too smart to know that it's not a horror movie, but I know what you mean, dude. And I appreciate yeah. that you're trying to go about it that way. Apparently he has aspirations to do stuff outside of this kind of feeling, but at the same time, like if he wanted to make these kinds of movies for the rest of his life, I think all of us would be like, sure. This is like a new kind of blending yeah. of genres. And uh, I feel like an asshole. I have not seen Midsommar yet, which is crazy. I think it would, it's a movie I think I would enjoy. Everyone keeps telling me to watch it. But um, this untraditional yeah. horror. What, what, what do you guys call it when you refer? What do you think of him like genre-wise? Like, how would you describe his movies? Drama, horror, drama. They're Psych- not thrillers. Psychological horror. You know, the psychological horror. psychological drama? I think the fairest drama. warning to give is you will not be comfortable watching this. Yeah. Whether it's the yeah. the tension build or whether it's the actual yeah. brutal nature of like the deaths, like that just come out of nowhere and it it's brutal. Yeah, and, it's and brutal. Dow's oh character God. is there to comfort us though, so no worries. <laughs> Dude, it's so funny. She's and, so good as always. <laughs> you know you shouldn't trust her, but you're just dying Dude, for like a new in- comforting I a, influence. Yeah. I have a note right here. I immediately don't trust Joan. Yeah, but you just want that. You want to believe the comfort enough that you just give into it. You're like, like okay, well, the I first want some time she here. pokes her head out, it's like I don't trust this woman. Yeah. There's something Talk going on. Talk about an actor who has embraced her type. That woman, yeah. <laughs> she knows exactly who she is. She's that role and everything, and I want more of it. She's All right, so, so good at it. we we at this point we should move on to how it wraps up the controversy. Yeah, let's get critical. Mm. I want to be. I want to be real with you guys. I've seen this movie twice now, and I felt the same way this time. Does the ending work for you? And by the ending, I mean all the way up until blackout, not just the idea of the last scene. Like, 
up to him jumping out of the window. So Tony Collette, spoiler alert for everybody. The full possession does happen. This demon that is supposed to be taking over the sun, uh, the cult has got everything in motion. So once Tony Collette kills Gabriel Byrne by trying to destroy the talisman object, which is the girl's diary, the sister's diary, who's dead, Tony Collette gets possessed. And she starts terrorizing the sun. And this movie ends with the sun going up to the outdoor treehouse where this final stage of their occult ritual happens. That's, that's the ending I'm talking about. There's a whole sequence that's dedicated to it. There's a whole song mm-hmm. that's dedicated underneath. I don't think he needed to say the last lines. If I'm being totally honest, I'm with you too. it always it pulls should, me it out. It should have been like dude. The Witch, where he just goes up there, and then you see what's going on. Well, and you then... knew what the fuck was happening. When he turns around and sees I them. I don't care. It, it was yeah. fun. It was fun. Paomin. I'm going to remember that name for a while, but I'm with you. Sorry, Dave. Pale, pa- from, yeah. the, from, the so, point where, uh, from the point where Gabriel Byrne catches fire, it just turned into a fucking comedy. Yeah, really? right. We'll go there, dude. Yeah. T- oh, tell but me, it was scary when she was like upside down on the ceiling. Like, yeah, dang when she's him. upside down on the ceiling, chasing him. Okay, cool. But after that, it's like you've got a fucking headless body floating through the air. It just looks ridiculous yeah. compared to everything they've done before. Right. Yeah, it's not. It's good. It, it, right. Yeah. They, they, right, so they literally, literally lost you feel that me way right about, there. So you feel that way about all of it as soon as he in the possession, like it, her crawling on the wall. Well, it was a little chasing. weird. No, him, I, I loved all that. It was, was a little. It was just from from yeah from the point. Like basically the from the catching on fire, basically from everything that happens outside the house afterwards where he goes up the treehouse and she floats up the treehouse, it was ridiculous. You could have stopped the movie right there and won. I don't think she and I and I'm not trying to sit here and armchair diagnose what he should have done. But she could have already been there, right? Without the floating. Yeah. We didn't need to see her shadow. We didn't need to see her floating up inside. We could have gotten rid of the last lines. Yeah, yeah. this is and not a horror movie, needed... but they have Tony Collette hanging from the ceiling, stabbing himself in the neck slowly. Like, come on. <laughs> that that no, is like piano wise. She's sawing her own head off. Yeah, yeah, she's sawing her own fucking head off, which is cool. Like, in a sense that, like, but the idea of that is cool. I don't know if we needed to watch it so long. Again, I understand why he needed to jump out of the window, though, because I wanted to jump out of the window I, with I him. I get that. I was like, that, out. that was great. But, like, having her float felt like just an excuse. For the thump sound you hear later, and the then yeah. yeah, and when she when she finally succeeds in like soaring her head yeah. off, and there's a couple of like in that whole sequence, there's a couple of things where it's just an excuse for something that happens later, and it, it just the whole ending from that point on just felt really yep. contrived to me. I agree with you, and I think he, I think it's because he, I think he broke his own rules. So all yeah. the things that we just praised this movie about the first two thirds of this film. He has a set of rules that is everything we were talking, like uh, uh, d- drama, the practicality of, of effects, um, this this intense realism. He still has a lot of patience in the ending, but he started trying to scare you as opposed to disturb you. And I again, I know what he's thinking from Alex's perspective, from the son's perspective. He has to be scared to throw himself out that window and complete the possession. Mm. But, but I think he could that. have achieved that with yeah. less. Yeah, I think they were already doing it. When he saw those naked people in the attic. Dude, I don't know if Tony needed to be up there sawing her head off because of no. those people in the attic. That got me. Yeah, I was same. like, okay, whoa. Seeing all these people in the woods yeah. and, and just in his house. Um, I, I, I was also already have to there. Ask, what, I knew what, what is this guy's problem do? with cults? 
Like, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, John, John, watch Midsummer because because it's it's also a cult that's even more culty earlier on, and it ends better. I would say, like, it ends more consistently. Yeah. I think in such a way that yeah. is haunting and disturbing, we but about... doesn't try I to mean, go for the, this, the crazy. I'm still glad I watched this movie, but again, yeah, yeah the ending was just sadly ridiculous and took away from. I think so. Too. It was terrible. And I'm not, Hail again, man. Like, if one of you guys, if one of you guys made this movie, I would still be like, you know, great job. I would like, fucking hope good. so, bro. A24 distributed my course. film. Get out of here. But if we're gonna be but we're if we're going to be a little critical of the ending do you guys remember when i was critical of the ending of the witch well these movies came mm. out you know relatively close a year to apart, each other yeah. in a couple of years yeah and i remember feeling like i was a little disappointed that the public embraced this film better than the witch what? i feel like there were more horror movie fans who kind of had issues with the witch because it was slower and stuff so even though i was complaining about that ending on our podcast I think it worked better than this ending. The, oh yeah, the, uh, sometimes sometimes yeah. you just need to end the movie. And and you know what? If the ending isn't everything you hoped for, then give it an eight, not a nine on IMDb, and move on with your life. You yeah, know what I mean, like the rest yeah. of the movie is so. But good. isn't that the most the rest important of the movie is part? So no. good. <laughs> I mean, isn't it, that the most no, important? The number one part? most important part is to entertain. I mean, I agree with you, but like there are there are plenty of movies that are have amazing endings that can kind of redeem the rest of it. And, I feel and like some have amazing like, endings that don't redeem the, the rest because you've gone too far. So it's a tough balance. Midsummer ends better. We got to end it. We're, four, we're, we're well over we 40 do. minutes here. Strap yourselves in, folks. It's going to be a long one tonight. This is a fun movie. I appreciate <laughs> I it. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Reach out to us on all the socials listed in your episode notes. We are going to come back with the favorite. See you, Philpin. We're back. We're back. We're back. Yeah. Oh my. That was gosh. fun. We are... Go ahead, John. Let me just jump Jeff, in there really quick. I, 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 I kind of said... noticed you got a bottle opener this week, Jeff. A real bottle opener. Real fucking child Fisher Price carrot peeler. All week I've been terrorizing him. John, make your speech. John, John, just, just wanted to correct myself. I think I said uh, never look away. One best foreign film this year. That's not true. Roma, Roma won. That's why it's such a big deal because we were mad it didn't win best picture as well because I thought it was. But Corona won best director. Dude, you and... never see the Oscars announcing the wrong winner. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. I think it good. Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. Let's, let's the Oscars announcing anyway, the wrong picture. They originally it. announced the film called La La Land, which starred Emma Stone, who's in our next film that we're going to be talking about, The Favorite. That is The Favorite with a U in it. Yes, it's, it's uh, for when you search for this one in the US, disable your autocorrect because it's spelt properly. This is Ooh. the British British spelling of the favorite. Favorite. Like color. C O U L O U R. So this is. Throw U's in there for that sound. This is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who you may know from films The Lobster in 2015, starring Colin Firth. Nope. Starring Colin. Shit, now I'm laughing at myself. Who is it? Which Colin is it? <laughs> Colin Farrell. Farrell. Colin Farrell. <laughs> the Lobster stars Irishman Colin Farrell and Brits Rachel Weisz and Olivia Colman. Then he did The Killing also, of the Sacred Deer in uh, 2017. Yeah, Dogtooth. Yeah, this guy's, he's good. This guy's on it. Um, yeah, he's the Lobster got some awards buzz. I got some Golden Globe nominations and shit. But the favorite comes up here in 2018. It is... Um, 
the IMDb description here is, In early 18th century England, a frail Queen Anne occupies the throne of England, and her close friend, Lady Sarah, governs the country in her stead. When a new servant, Abigail, played by Emma Stone, arrives, her charm endears her to Sarah. That's bullshit. I don't know what the fuck. Anyway, it, it's, it's all about Eve set in early 1800s England in the monarchy. <laughs> that's, that's a fair comparison. It is all about <laughs> Eve in the royal palace. Based very, very loosely on fact. It's based very loosely on facts. And I will say, I'm going to shout, I, I saw this movie in the theaters. It's about two hours long. I was, I was in it the whole time. I really loved it. I was very, very happy that Olivia Colman won an Oscar. No disrespect to Glenn Close, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not the 2018 Academy's fault that they that in the, in the eighties, they voted for share over you. That's fucked up. Like Glenn Close should have won in the eighties. It's, that's a mistake. Oh Yeah. That history just can't go back on. That's one of the best villain performances of all time. Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. But in 2018, Olivia Coleman does something that just rocked my fucking world. I love Olivia Coleman. Obviously, I'm watching Broadchurch right now. I wanted her to win an Emmy for the Queen. I love that Zendaya won. I love, love Olivia Coleman. And I love Rachel Weisz. I wish she was my wife. Sorry, Daniel Craig. Sorry, Chloe. Um, <laughs> Emma Stone's cool. I love this film. Wait, which, which one of them are you dating? <laughs> this time watching it through i was just i was just on wikipedia the whole time watching up like the thing so i i don't know what it was to a rewatch to me but i like this film a lot if you've never seen it i highly recommend it just avoid wikipedia because as soon as you go on you're going to stop watching the film and you're going to go into a deep dive about queen anne i don't know if that's a good mm. setup or are you saying that because film. i mean of do the that lack afterwards of factual stuff or to, because it no, was, there's just, just so much more to the and, story. Yeah, there's, there's so, so much more to the especially story, especially at this time in her yeah. life. Yeah, and ultimately he does he does the right thing. Yorgos does the right thing where he focuses on the three of them, but the yada 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 a lot, and eventually a lot of this the diplomatic scenes that something is gained by either Emma Stone or Rachel Weisz. Right? There's like it's they're they're playing right. It's almost like a card game. They're they're playing to see who's the chip leader for Olivia Coleman, who plays Queen Anne's affection. Mm. Right, it's like so, mini Game of Thrones. Yeah, okay, hold on. Okay, let me set the whole thing up. <laughs> so Olivia Coleman has gout, and historically she's lost seventeen children, most of whom they lost pre-birth. She also lost an eleven-year-old son who was set up to be the king, the future king. So she has a, every single child she's ever tried to conceive has died. Her husband has died. She's in, in a terrible state of mourning, and she has gout. So she's basically, as far as like royal monarchs go she's as close to like useless as you could get for lack of a better word sorry she's, she's also, having a 2020 yeah she's having a 2020 also this is right when england is becoming great britain with unifying all these other um countries she's the last royal who has ever tried to veto a legislative bill by parliament and this precedes the american civil the american revolutionary war so we're talking this is historically an important time and ultimately Rachel Weiss's character, who is her husband, is like the lead general, for lack of a better word, in this ongoing war with France. So she is a very prominent person who is actually in charge of the royal purse. So all of a sudden, Rachel Weiss is basically the stand in monarch. And Emma Stone, who is a cousin of not even the queen, a cousin of Rachel Weiss, comes in and slowly starts working her way into the queen's favor until all of a sudden it becomes basically a battle over who's like the queen's go-to mate, I suppose you could say. And 
that sounds thrilling, I suppose. But after an hour, and it's just like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I want to know more about the husband as the general. I want to know more about Lady Sarah, who is Winston Churchill's great, 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 great grandma. I want to know more about that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's not my best setup so. in the world, but th- th- that's where no, I went I mean, on this time. Well, but I mean, if you've you never said, seen the film, said, I think you should see it. You yeah. said that th- that sounds thrilling. And to be honest with you, I don't even think that that sounds thrilling. So you have to kind of adjust like going into this because this is not a plot driven movie. This is just characters fucking with each other. And um, the pageantry is awesome. Like the makeup and the the presentation of that period is is pretty well done, even though he takes a lot of liberties with, you know, certain costume styles, certain uh, dance, certain music. Like he definitely it was great to see the number that inspired Saturday Night Fever, though. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, was this filmed? I wanted to ask you this outright, because this is something mm-hmm. that, and I know nobody thinks about this shit, probably, except for weirdos like me, but was this shot digitally? No. It was not shot No, digitally. they insisted on shooting on film. Um, Did they treat he... it chemically, though? Because it looks oh, like always. it was... You have to treat the film chemically. I'm not sure what... You don't have uh, to, right? You don't, not... you don't have to. You can still do post... You can treat it chemically and then continue tweaking. I mean, you can, I feel yeah, like this I mean, was... They do, they do a digital intermediate. They did that. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the film has to be treated chemically to begin I feel like with. it needed more... I feel like sometimes it needed a little bit more smoke in the room. Like, sometimes I was... I felt like I was... I couldn't quite tell if he wanted me to actually feel like this is a realistic telling of this mm. period or if it was supposed to feel like, no, not quite. Because even aesthetically, it didn't yeah. quite feel I mean, like that's also, how it would look. <laughs> he also alternated between, um, I believe it was the Panavision vintage lenses and Nikon Nikkor lenses. Which so, ones were the fish eyes? That's the Nikon Nikkor, I believe. Yeah. Um, which is cool. You know, it's cool they're to have that they're effect, a lot crisper. But... It's it's almost like a video lens on a cam- on a film camera. I don't it's know. too crisp. Yeah, yeah it, was I mean, too, <laughs> it was too crisp for me. That was a, it was an interesting choice when I looked it up. I was like, that's that's an interesting combination of lenses to use. Yeah, which honestly, I mean, in I mean, to, who were we praising last time? Uh, Billy Water. Like sometimes, you know, I'm not I mean, one of those people. That I definitely don't mind when I know the director is directing. Like I kind of want to get inside somebody's yeah. head. I mean, but I'm not bagging that out. So they was nominated for best cinematography, so you know, obviously they did something right. I, yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I feel like the cinematography kind of got in the way. It kept to come back to what Jeff was saying. There were some technical and aesthetic elements that kept making me think, "What is this movie about?" Like, I, mm. does that make sense? Like, I kept trying to. I wasn't sure if there was a. I found the fisheye lenses a little distracting. Yeah, um, I was when they suddenly a cut to that uh, and then cut back to a standard lens, it was it was like, what what was the purpose of that? Like it, and it was literally at one point they divide a corridor and it's a really ultra wide fisheye lens and it looks strange and then they just cut back straight to a normal shot from the shot before it. And I was like, that's really distracting. I I'm not sure why you're doing that. They also used um, pretty much natural light or candlelight the whole way through. Which, and see, I, that was straight up Barry Lyndon, right? Like I appreciated mm. that, especially in the, some of the nighttime shots with the candle stuff. It was like that fucking landed for me aesthetically, but let, let's get away from this. I do like the, uh, to go to what you're saying, Jeff, I did enjoy that. <laughs> For one thing, I like that all the women dress like men and the men dress like women. And I like that all of the politics of everything that you wanted to know more about, Jeff, 
everything was being decided but in closed door situations with very personal gossipy relationships between two women basically uh Rachel Weiss and Olivia Coleman and eventually Emma Stone gets in there but most the bulk of the politics all the men are on the proximity uh so here's the big question i appreciated the idea of that did it work for you guys uh, for a 2 hour movie the, the first think, time yes the first time yes the second time what was happening to you this time? Like, why did you find it so easy to look at Wikipedia the entire time? Is it lack of story? Was the style overbearing? Were you just kind of like, think there I've, was seen, anything, I've been here before? I don't think there was anything hidden in the subtext that I didn't get the first time. Um, and good. the That's filmmaking awesome. elements. I was curious about symmetry. Um, I was curious to see if it felt more like still photography on a fantastical set. Rather fantastical than, is a good word. That Thank you. That's, Kind of what we were trying to say. It has a fantastical nature. Keep going. Sorry, that was good. I mean, it's huge and it's stunning, but on second rewatch, I didn't love it more, if anything, you know. And um, I love all the performance. I love all the performers, including shout out to Nicholas Holt and Mark Ugh, Gaddis God, so for giving some awesome um, supporting roles. But I, I, the other three actresses, I, I love a lot. Olivia Coleman's one of my favorites working right now. Um, her performance was the only one, not for disrespect of the other ladies, obviously, but hers is the only one that I was like, I found more interesting this time. Me too. I think I'm going really to echo that big time. I really enjoyed Rachel Weisz. Um, of she's just yeah, She's brutal, yeah. brutal, menacing, and completely unlikable. Like, to the point yeah, where you can't but, wait to see I what like she'll it. do next. <laughs> like, what mean and things she's going to do next. You don't realize how many intentions she's playing because she seems so innocent. Yeah. She seems so straightforward. Who you fuck with that? It, it almost catches you. Out. It, yeah. Honestly, it's very classic, right? It's honestly, like too. in Hollywood, back to All About Eve. It's very. It's like when all of a sudden you realize, oh, these people are better than the other people. Like you don't even realize it. Yes. Like yeah. We talked about the apartment last week, and you're like, oh, Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon are just better than their peers. Like, hmm. I feel like Rachel Weisz is that way. She's not just the girl from I the think Mummy. So too. Like, she actually is doing a oh, bunch yeah. of shit. I, and Emma's great. I really love, um, like, coming from, like, an Australian background where we have, like, the Lords and all that sort of stuff. We're used to, anyway. Um, Everywhere. And, wigs, uh, yeah. But I love that the Lords and the Tories and everyone are accurately portrayed as the fools that they are. Like, they're yeah, just yeah. absolute <laughs> yeah. fucking horrendous buffoons. They're, they're like racing ducks and throwing tomatoes <gasps> at a naked guy in a yes. wig. It's like, you, yeah, it, there's, there's nothing getting done here. When Nicholas Holt, <laughs> who is uh, Jeff, what's the name of the actor who plays the guy who marries Emma Stone's character? The blonde guy, the young blonde guy. It's Joe Alwyn, I think. Okay, so when he first goes in the the title of this segment, all these are all the, this movie is broken up into lots of vignettes in the story, mm. and they're titled. So the title of this section is "That's Quite an Outfit," and when he walks into Emma Stone's chambers fully garbed the makeup and the wig and everything and she says oh it's quite yeah. an outfit they have their little scene she fucks with them and then sends about nicholas holt is out there saying how did it go she's like she bit me and i don't know <laughs> if it was quite enough and he's like the wig the wig was terrible and nicholas holt says well the man must be pretty it's <laughs> yeah. like everything about this movie with at least like for the for the, the lords everything you're talking about dave with the way they present this absurdity with the Lords, which is summed mm. up so sincerely. Yeah. I with mean, that line. it is definitely filmed from a woman's perspective, which is strange because you don't often see like a male cinematographer or director or anyone doing that like successfully. Mm -hmm. It's and this this Not one America, really does nail it. Sure. Yeah, right. I think Jeff, do, I agree with you that uh, 
the performances were what I was noticing most this time. Cause you can't, of course you can't help, but notice that when you're watching this movie in general, but I remember the first time seeing it in the theater and stuff, like you're kind of blown away, whether you like it or not, by the spectacle of a period, whenever anybody does a period piece and they pull it off, you're of course you're looking at the pageantry and the costumes and the natural lighting and stuff like that. However, I remember when I saw this movie and then when the nominations came out and Olivia Colman won, of course she does an amazing job. But I was mm. team Rachel Weiss that whole year. I was like, hold on. Olivia Colman does a master. She, she masterfully portrays all those amazing impediments. And they're all very complicated and nuanced. And they're hilarious. So that she brings so much humor to the issues with her gout and her depression and her strokes and everything that happens to her. But even watching it this time, I remember thinking, I don't think Rachel Weiss got enough credit for the complexity of playing all those intentions. And she is the she was nominated for everything. She, she was, was she nominated was for everything, for everything yeah, but yeah, it was almost. Yeah, yeah I so just remember. Emma, I don't know. Impressive. I just remember thinking, like Olivia Coleman has you know so much light on her right now. It's just in her career that you know we just expect greatness. So it was it was wonderful to see her do something else that was that amazing. But Emma was Emma was wonderful. But uh, Rachel, I don't know. I've just all I've always felt like she's just been kind of underappreciated. Yeah. Like I don't know if anyone mm-hmm. has ever. Well, she's so pretty that I think sometimes she you know it gets distracting because she's just so beautiful and she has right. the accents and everything. But I thought she did something in this movie that a lesser actor you would have. There was zero distraction in this that movie. Role. Yeah, yeah. You never right. even think about what she's doing because well, it's seamless, and yet it's. It's maybe the most complicated role. I think and, it's definitely the most. And she's making role. she's making carefully veiled threats that are not veiled at all, yeah. and to to various people. And you're like, wow, she's like it's yeah. it's a character progression. Then you see like Emma Stone do the same thing in her stead. Only right. Emma Stone doesn't really get the threatening thing. She just becomes something horrid. Mm-hmm. And it's I, I feel like it's a good performance all around by the three. Like main Definitely. characters, yeah, masterclasses, yeah, yeah. Rehearsed, yeah. yeah, and they rehearsed and everything. Um, Rachel Weiss actually is probably the most pro femme too, if we're going that route, because that role that she's playing in this film, as I said earlier, she was the the head of coin. She was basically like the the head of treasury mm. if they had cabinets the back then. Um, so yeah, she's the head of the purse specifically for the royal family because there is that weird separation between the regals and then the Whigs and the Tories are the two major families who are the survivors of the the English Civil War of the 1600s. So it's basically like their descendants, because there's still classism and aristocracy, um, are the Whigs and the Tories, which is why it's so outlandish. So they're basically fighting their grandfather's battles still, and it's all just yeah. bullshit. But Ra- Rachel Weiss's character, I don't know if it would be better or, or more pro-fam if, if they stuck to the, the fact that she had seven kids while this was going on. Mm. Um, I think that would have been an interesting element, that here we have mm. the queen with zero kids, and then her potential mistress although that's not necessarily historically accurate but if we go with the movie rachel weiss who's basically playing up to the love languages of queen anne who's desperate and wants attention and she has seven kids at home like i feel like she has seven kids queen has zero i feel like that would have been been awesome she really just wants someone to pet her rabbit and that is not a euphemism yeah yeah A lot Plus of fingering in this movie she wants somebody to pet her rabbit i also thought it was uh that would have been a, that would have been even better because I was just about to try to make the point and that so, this is why people more. don't go on IMDb don't go on Wikipedia or IMDb when you watch this movie I, I did I'll, I'll be your representative don't do it don't There's just watch it to unpack I think Rachel Weisz also is the um, like I said like there's more masculinity in the female costumes and more femininity in the males 
And I think Rachel plays both parts. She, there are plenty of uh, scenes where she is both. I feel like she is the only one of the women because Emma kind of stays in the feminine side with the maid's dresses and her nice ladies' dresses. There are a lot of scenes She's where Rachel part, is yeah. dressed like in very masculine attire and she, she fucking owns yeah. it. And she, mm, owns, she yeah. also owns when, when her boobs are pushed up in her face and a corset and a ladies' gown. She plays both sides of the politics and the masculine yeah. and feminine energies so well. And there's, you know, there's a lot of actors who say, let the costume take you there. That's the final step with getting into character. You always hear that with like superheroes and like period piece people. But I, I do think sometimes. Yeah, I don't know but that I do think when you have modern to do... day when the, the costume isn't there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when there's a range though, like yeah. this. Let like, the motion uh, tracking suit get you there. Yeah, but I mean, when there's a range of stuff like this, I feel like emotionally as an actor, you can't just let the costume tell you who you are. She yeah. had to do a lot of work to be the the character that would choose to wear both of those kinds of outfits. Yeah, that's a good point. And again, I just thought it was more complicated. And I just, I just, I don't know. I don't think she got enough credit for this. I really don't. I know she got nominated for stuff. Everybody shined the light on Olivia and everyone was impressed that Emma Stone could do an English accent. She did a great job. (laughs) She was, Emma Stone was good. And she got, she's always good. She's wonderful. I mean, my first, my first impression of this, like the, the, in the very first, like two minutes is you're like, oh, it's quirky. Like they're having fun, yeah. And like yeah, the dialogue, that these are people that know each other. They joke around and they communicated that perfectly. But did you feel like yeah. it kind of ended like The Sopranos? No, well, for sure. Get there. Yeah, does yeah, the ending definitely. work for you guys? Does the ending, the last twenty minutes or so, does it land I mean, for you? I think it works because I wanted more. And it, but it just like they get to a certain point and it's like the story's done and we we cut to black and they held. For a long time and then the credits come up and it's really funny because i was watching it with my wife who loved it as well um and she was like she said that in that moment i was thinking wouldn't it be great if they just ended it there so we had two completely different reactions i wanted more and she was like no this is this is where you could end it but what did they she did. i'm just curious for each of you let's just go hmm. there and i want to know if therese had an opinion what do you guys think the ending means is it surface level is it on the page I need, I'm dizzy, help, I need someone. And, you know, she's got her hand on Emma Stone and Emma's like, oh, I'm going to be her bitch for the rest of my life. I didn't actually, you know, achieve. Is it that obvious? Or do you think there was something more there that we were supposed to read into with I, the rabbits? I, I feel like there was, the, I mean, it, and they held it for a long time. I feel like it was uh, kind of Emma, reali- like her character realizing that what she'd become. And it was a case of be careful what you wish for. And power corrupts mixed in together. Yeah, I I, I thought it was so. Emma, my, I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer this slowly. My, I, I I like Emma so much. I think she's great. I really do. She's just more indicative than the other actresses in this movie. Now, on first watch, you're not gonna think about that. I promise you. Don't take what I'm saying too seriously. But there are a couple times where she's just too obvious what she's thinking. I personally love the performances where. There's always something else that you just can't. I've seen There Will Be Blood 10 times and I still have no idea what Daniel's thinking. Maybe that's unfair to bring that up. But like, even if I did, even if it was, there are other Rachel Weiss in this film. I'll see this film again and I don't, I, I know what she's going at, but she's toggling so much. I don't really know what's going on. Olivia Coleman, I'm just fascinated to know like what is going on there. Mm. Emma Stone, I, I don't, I don't leave the film wondering more about Emma Stone. Um, and so I just, I, I just felt like it was simplistic and now, now maybe this is me and not her, but I felt that it was just 
oh, now I have to deal with the consequences of my action. So it's just a waiting game. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> like, honestly, she's noble now. Yeah. So like, even though she's not going to be the queen, she's set for life. Her her kids, in a weird way, probably could, you know, rise up and even above her station, if you, if you think long term like that. But now she basically has to, what, wait for the queen to die? I, I just I just felt like it was... I felt like this is the first time that there wasn't anything to play. And so now it's bored, but she can't leave it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Mm. I, I'm, I often, often, I've seen this movie twice, but I remember having a big <laughs> debate about this with the person I saw it with. And uh, I felt the way today when I was watching this again that I was thinking more about Olivia. Because uh, I agree with you, Jeff. I feel like it's, how much more can there be for Emma's character? And, and it seems like it's, that it's what it's supposed to be. And that's how she plays it. And something so intense is happening to her, you know, with the hand on the head that you're like, what yeah. else could she be conceiving? But then it goes up to Olivia and she has that amazing journey that she takes in this close up where she looks around the room. And I think she, I still think it's relatively surface level um, that she realizes I didn't want someone to just be able to manhandle, man, woman handle, however, whatever it is, to be able to do yeah. whatever the fuck I want to do with them. I don't want that as in a relationship personally. And I also don't want my, my dynamic with politics to actually be that you said it, Jeff, that was the last time that a Royal tried to veto something that parliament wanted. Yeah. So I feel like it was, I thought it was touching on something much more big picture that there was no more countenance to the queen. And I think she was experiencing it personally that she lost Rachel. She kicked out the person who was her Mm. contradiction, who was giving her truth. Yeah. And I thought that Olivia Coleman just, I, I mean, I was watching Emma, but I was like, cut, cut, cut. I forgot that it cut to Olivia Coleman. I was so excited. And she just has like 30 seconds where she looks around a room and I feel like the entire story gets told in her eyes. And it's still this, I don't know if it, it, it's not deeper than that. And I don't even know if it made the rest of the movie worth it. I'm not, I don't even know if I love this ending, but it does go to show you that like, when you have an actor who understands how to do their job really well, <laughs> sure, sure. Enjoy. I didn't think he saw it at first. <laughs> I didn't see it. I also don't feel like I'm gushing. I can't believe I didn't get the gush for Olivia Colbert. I I don't even know if I love this ending, but I did think. (laughs) I I thought. Fuck you, gush, you gush, bitch. Well, tell me, tell me if you agree with. Tell me, tell me if you agree with this. Were we supposed? I was. I was more concerned and interested in what Olivia was going through than what Emma was going through. Even though I felt like they wanted us to be thinking about. I would rather watch perspective. I would rather watch Olivia Coleman die for the next three years than watch Emma Stone figure out what her next like move is going to be. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice long buzz there. I mean, this is this is the Godfather, and Olivia Coleman is the Godfather. It's like it's Michael's story, but but Marlon Brando is going to win the Oscar. That's the role, and so like I want to play it out until the end. Dude, like I want to see what happens to Marlon Brando. That's what it is. That one scene. I mean, of course, all of her breakdowns are amazing, but that one scene when she doesn't realize she doesn't know where she is mm. she like pushes emma away and she's screaming at everyone where yeah. like all of her freakouts are just unbelievable so i thought she fucking nailed that and obviously you cannot help but think about the fact that yes and then she immediately played queen elizabeth and we all anyone who watched that it's such a different a different well, human she got being. That after the favorite mm. so yeah but you can't help but now looking back when you watch it you're like okay she's played two different versions what i thought she nails about both of them is that both of them are 100% on display. So they have very different yeah. personality types, but they this actor realizes you don't really hide who you are from your servants and stuff. They see everything. Yeah, and, the, the, and they the really played into that. Like yeah. the poor servants copped a flogging during this movie. 
Oh, oh. God, it was it was very funny <laughs> overall. What, did you guys love this movie overall? Watching it a second time, I, 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 this was time? my first time. I loved it. Oh, it was, okay. David. Okay. Awesome. Okay. I think this movie plays very well for a first time watch. And now I don't know, Dave, if you can even have that context. But the second watch, I don't know what you'd be looking for that the second watch would be as enjoyable or more enjoyable, if that makes sense. But I think this is a film that everybody should see once. Definitely. Yeah. And we need to move yeah. this on. All cool. right, Dave, let's do That's it. Good. So we're going to pick out a new generator next year. There's new movies coming out. I really wish I'd seen Enola Holmes. There's a couple other things that I oh, wish yeah. I'd seen. I'm on a TV binge I'm right now. So new movies are coming week. out, but awesome. Oh, well, let's hear the review. You got me in with um, Pine Barrens. What was that movie that we made me see? Palm Springs. Um, Palm Springs. Yeah. Um, okay, Dave, let's do it. What year we got next week? All right. Anything else we can fuck Dave up with right now to talk about? My parents loved Away, by the way. I feel really bad about that. I shat oh, on it last no. week. I should have given it more time. <laughs> yeah. Thanksgiving's going to be awkward at Jeff's time. house. Damn it. They loved it. Oh. I, I should have given it more time. I love the idea. I mean, it hasn't pulled an early one yet, but we're uh, we're living in the 70s this week. Yay. Ooh. 76. Oh, my God. Jeff, yeah. that was the year, dude. Brace yourself. <laughs> okay, guys. We'll, see. we'll talk about this. We're going to take a pee break. Get another beer. Because we're talking about Solo next, people. We're talking about Solo. We're fucking doing it. We'll see you soon, film fans. Bah! And we're back. We're back. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I can't wait till the end of this segment. Uh-huh. That didn't that didn't come out right. Yeah, but at the end right. of this segment, <laughs> dude. <laughs> at the end of this segment, we are going to announce which three films from the year 1976 we are going to talk about. Believe it or not, this is 20 seconds for you. This is 30 one, yeah. minutes for us. One of them you will not see coming. You won't see. One of which you will not see coming. The other two you might. Okay, but first we have to talk about Solo. We have to talk about Solo. <laughs> so Solo. What's Solo? Solo is on Disney Plus, first of all. So also my had movie library. People had waited for so as soon as as soon as Disney as soon as Disney bought the rights to Star Wars, and we all knew that they were going to start doing spinoffs and prequels. Rogue One was an obvious first choice, and then it was like we need the Solo origin story, right? And so we don't know who to give credit to. If that's going to be, is it Harrison Ford? It's not going to be Harrison Ford in this movie. So are we really going to want to see it? Is this going to be a series? Is it going to be a movie? What the fuck do you do with the solo, the Han Solo origin story? Because <laughs> they wanted it to be funny. It has to be, a, it has to have a funnier tone than the rest of the Star Wars franchise. And then um, I have a couple quotes here. This is from Variety. Lord and Miller get fired. Spoiler alert. And then the movie gets delayed a year. The production gets pushed back. The release date gets delayed from 2017. It goes from like February 2017 what to it, August it, 2017. It, it ended up at a $300 million budget, Yeah, it right? started at 275 and then they just started yeah. chunking on top of it. So here we go. I have a couple quotes. So this yeah. is Lawrence Kasdan is most famous for being the screenwriter for Empire Strikes Back. He also came in to help with... Yeah, the second best Star Wars film ever. Wow. <laughs> what do you go with number one? Do you go, do you go New Hope number one? <laughs> No, I was I was right in that age frame with Jedi. Oh, cool! Like uh, that was that was my like yeah. teenage. All right, Empire's yeah. better. Um, so so we have um this quote yeah. by Lawrence Kasdan. <laughs> Fuck yourself. Oh, <laughs> by Lawrence Kasdan. 
who he told it to Variety. You ready? Tone is everything to me. That's what movies are made up of. When you go to work in the morning on a Star Wars movie, there are thousands of people waiting for you and you have to be very decisive and very quick about it. When you are making these split second decisions and there's a million a day, you are committed to a certain tone. Chris and Phil, this is Chris Miller and Phil Lloyd, did everything they could do to make it work. The question only became about how to make the movie most cost effective in the time that we had. And then it cuts to a crew member who said, I got a lot of overtime on this movie. <laughs> so Lord and Miller, so long story short, they're doing the, the, the Han Solo origin story and the directors come in and they're doing improv on set. Now, if you've ever seen a Star Wars movie, yeah. there's just... There's no way that improv works on set when you have different camera angles and cutting and 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 you just certain things just have to land. So Kathleen Kennedy, who um, was originally Steven Spielberg's assistant a million years ago, now she's the she she just runs Disney's film division, which is basically everything, including Marvel. But she specifically put her name on all the Star Wars movies. And she came in and said, no fucking way. So they fired them in the middle of shooting. All the actors got really okay. uncomfortable. Spe- specifically. The uh, the improv got so out of control that actually changed the plot of the movie. Yeah, and and the, but some of the plot stayed in. They'd right? gone so far. They'd gone. Yeah, they no, but they'd gone so far off book with the improv right. that some of what was written didn't make sense. Yeah, anymore. but you know what? They didn't improvise mm. that somebody was a fucking Palpatine. So I think this improv was totally fine. Mm. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is a lot of setup. The reason we're talking about solo, we haven't even Jeff, talked about let it go. We haven't even talked let, about the experience. Let it go. Well, look, <laughs> at least it's not Toy Story. So here's here's the fact. Here's the fact. What if at the end of this movie they pulled a Quentin Tarantino and they just killed Han Solo and Chewbacca? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but here's the thing. This story about the making of this movie being delayed a year it fucked up Atlanta, which was a fantastic show which came out in 2017 and we've only had two seasons in the past four years, primarily because of this fucking shoot taking forever. And because the head of FX had to come out and be like, what am I supposed to do? He's filming star Wars. Like he actually said that out loud. So anyway, (laughs) I was so ready for it. But then the story, I mean, that's a fair excuse. The story affected the way I saw this movie the first time in 2018. So it starts out, it's very chaotic. It's very sincere. In my point of view, we can talk more about that later, but it didn't feel like Han Solo. It felt like star Wars masturbating on itself and trying to make money. And I, and I, I I backed away. This is me in 2018, not now. That's a 2018 drink. So here we are two years later. We're, here we are two years later. And we're giving it a rewatch. And I did everything I could to not take any notes at the beginning of the film because I knew that I would just immediately get online. So I stayed away and I watched the film. My take on the film coming later. Who wants to take it from there? Well, because the making of this film really became Dude, a huge story. A, and I think it influenced. What are we, idol? I think it, well, I think it influenced the way people saw the movie because it definitely did for me. It 100% did for me. Oh, um, actually, Alden came out recently and spoke to that effect that the, like, the media, like, basically, it's like, did this movie fail because they were expecting Alden to literally be Harrison Ford? Or did it fail because the media overexposure and their feeding frenzy reporting? basically made everyone go this is gonna fail before they even saw it i mean it's a combination of the two you know i think people were very yeah. curious what would happen if a star wars movie completely and, crashed yeah and don't burned. get me wrong it's it's like it's like when they made episode one and uh ewan mcgregor was obi-wan and in the first line he drops he is channeling alec guinness yeah. like it is spot on an alec guinness impersonation then he slowly gravitates towards making it his own but it's it's like the he like they knew the first thing out of his mouth had to sound like Obi Wan, and it, it yeah. they like 
they didn't do that in in solo and i think it threw a lot of people i mean there's so many things that that through they tried to do something that hadn't been done before yeah in in my opinion but also the media ate this fucking thing a lot yeah exactly so so here we are people who hate the media the media truth matters so let's be real but (laughs) the people who if you if you're out there and and you're like fuck film critics fuck film twitter even though we're certainly advertising on film twitter because we want people to listen to our podcast if you want to know what this film is like i wouldn't hate the media if they made some fucking sense we're talking about film media specifically here <laughs> and, or just the arrogance, no, no, the arrogance no, no, that no. film media brings in. Most people who write for film media were young when Star Wars episodes four, five and six came out. And so now they're very quick to get on their high horse and give you a bunch of big words and a bunch of liter- references that mean nothing to anybody. So anyway, this is our setup. The tone was tricky. I love the I, I love the opening title scroll, like kind of check out where they're like a long, long time ago. And I actually far, far away. This is a different Star Wars movie. Let's go on. If this yeah, didn't boom. happen in the middle of the reboot, then maybe people would have rooted for it the way they rooted for um, Ro- um, The Force Awakens, which is a fine film, but it's it's whatever. Hmm. Anyway, let's talk about the movie. Sorry. John, what do you what do you think about the movie? Good or bad or in between? Go. Uh, yeah, I, I like this movie. Um... I don't think it goes beyond that for me, though. Like, I think one, I think this is a fan service movie. Any of these, like, off the, what, Dave, what, what, are, they, what are they actually calling these that are not part of the main story? The spinoff? They're not spinoffs. Spin they're is anthologies. That? Yeah. Anthology series. So, yeah. like, you know, you get a lot of that. You know that going in, though. So you're like, you just put on that cap and you're, you know, you're going to see a lot of fan service and your exposition trying to catch people up. Like, oh, that's totally how him and Chewbacca met. Like, oh, that's so cool. Do you have to just kind of say, like, here we go. I'm going to I'm going to get over that for 15 or 20 minutes. But then you want a, a movie to develop. Even if you're going in there with with that expectation, you're going to want to be surprised. You're still sitting down for 2 hours to watch a good story. You know, you can't just have fan service. And I think this movie almost gets there. And and I'm not even saying that I disliked it or that it's bad. It doesn't I don't think it surpasses what it was capable of. And I have a feeling that it, that is completely because of the making. There was so much, there was such a shit show. You have all these different people that I think, I think that there are some basic elements of structure that Ron Howard eventually just made a decision on. And it feels like he didn't have all the tools in his box that he was hoping to make this story with. It ends too quickly. It, and I mean, literally like the very end, not the, not the whole sequence on the, Oh, it ends just quickly Hopefully enough. We'll I didn't need to see the card bit. game. We know he wins the ship in a card game. I did not need to see the card game. That's what I'm saying. I was like, why are we, why are they doing this? It should have ended. He shows up at the card good, game and he so goes, I want to like... buy in. And you just know what it means. <laughs> yeah. We, they, game over, need right. Else. So there, that's, that's fair. The, that's fair the beginning that. and the end of this movie are fan service. They needed to see him win the Falcons. You're like, God damn it. I know. But like, they wanted that shot. The they thing. wanted so the shot of him flying away in the Falcon so fucking bad that they ruined the five minutes leading up to it. How's that for an answer? This is one thing. All right. No, I, I, I like agree the film too, by the way. That. That's my spoiler. Go ahead, Jack. I, I, yeah, I, I like it too. I've seen this three times now. I think I rewatched this on my own after seeing it in theaters because I, I struggled with it in the theater and I remember rewatching it and liking it a little bit more. Anyway, I do think the opening 10 minute sequence is not as interesting as when he's in war. So there's a part of me now that Mm. I've seen it a few times that kind of wishes they would have started with him in war. And then as so many movies have done through maybe not necessarily flashbacks, but through tidbits of dialogue or personal moments of why it's so important to him to get back to where he came from, we could have discovered where he came from 
through Han's perspective, as opposed to them showing us outright where he came from. It did not work for me. It didn't. That's three times in a row. The very beginning 10 minutes felt forced to me. And I think it took me out of it because I really like when it starts from the war onward. I thought it was much more interesting. Do, do you guys agree with that at all? Or? Yes. Yeah. Dave, I'll, I'll agree with that. I mean, the, I mean, even the first scene, like it, I know it had to be dark, but did it need to be that dark? Like you're you talking literally, about literally dark, right? Literally dark. You can't <laughs> yeah. see any fucking. By the thing. way, that's like, my drinking yeah. game. <laughs> we decided this week that we were going to try to maybe give you guys something to drink to while you watch these redemption movies. Every time you can't make out something in this movie visually, <laughs> take a drink for John because I you can't see like a third of this yeah. movie is too dark. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Because I, I, I saw love it. I, I went and saw it. I went and saw it in 3D at the at the theater because um, that was where I could get a seat. I I can't remember. I don't like watching 3D conversions, but um. I went and saw this and I'm like, oh, they've really messed up the 3D. Like they haven't like graded it enough for the light. And then I, I bought the thing and yeah, I own no, it. And it's it like, no, that's, that was a, that was a decision. I'm like, what? You expect Han Solo just to be like a swashbuckler, like Austin Powers meets Star Wars. So let's, let's get grit out of this, but it's Disney grit, which isn't real grit, which just means dark. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is what I kept thinking. You're, you're exactly right, dude. <laughs> That's so perfect. I kept thinking Casino Royale. Like, they were trying to show me a badass opening chase sequence. Chasing, yeah. with, with, you know, with some some fun. Uh, which one is the is the second one? Quantum of Solace, where James they didn't Bond have a script. A, <laughs> whatever the amazing chase sequence is, where he's running on cranes and he's chasing that guy. Whatever yeah, the fuck that's Quantum of Solace. And, and the, the opening sequence is cool. Okay, they didn't okay, have a script, okay. so they needed that sequence to be good. Oh, really? So okay. I knew what they were the trying to do. Strike. I think Quantum everyone knew what they were trying to do. I thought that was out of order. Sorry, John. I don't know, you guys. I feel like if there is one weakness with this movie, and it's it's very important because it sustains the entire movie, is his relationship with Khaleesi. <laughs> I can't remember her, her character's Clark. name. No, I know yeah. it's Amelia. I can't remember Kira? her character's name in this movie. Kira, but it's Kira. with a Q. Kira. So, Kira. 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 Okay. It's still Kira. 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 Star Wars so, doesn't do use. So I feel like they were trying to, I think they fell into a trap of trying to push that down your throat. I missed the joke. You guys are laughing without me. That's throwing an episode one joke. Yeah. All right. Fuck it. Fuck it. I think that they worked way too hard at trying to establish that relationship, which whenever I see that, that tells me you don't have enough script, uh, trust in your script or your actors that you felt like you needed to tell me over and over and over again about why he needs to go back. Like literally there are two or three times where he says, I need to go back. If your movie is good, you don't need to tell us that. Wait, we know they, why they, you they want gave this it away. score. I'm sorry, keep, we know you want to go we're back. We're doing the thing where we don't let Dave talk, but they gave it away. And, and I wrote down, I, I said at the beginning, there was too much sincerity. Um, first of all, the grandpa jokes were driving me crazy. There's some, there some, some very Han Solo-esque lines. Like Woody, Woody Harrelson says to, to um, Han Solo, Sorry, I punched you in the face. And Han Solo responds, "Happens more than you'd think." They have that. They yeah. have that exchange off camera. Are you kidding me? Like that is such a that that's such a that actually on paper just seems like such a Han Solo thing. Mm. Do it on screen. They did it as an afterthought coda after the seed was over. Um, there was a campfire sequence where they're all like, there's a girl, isn't it? And he goes, there is a girl. I miss her and I want to go back and get her. And I was like, this is way too much sincerity. This is the character who famously, when someone said, I love you, he says, 
I know, and pulled it off with sincerity. And here we are. And he's saying, I just want to make enough money to buy a ship to go find the girl in the first 20 minutes. So the weird thing about this film, which is, and I don't, I don't blame myself for, for the first time I watched it being caught up in the reviewers because the truth is they were right, but they weren't right about the whole movie. They were just right about the 20 minute setup and then the 10 minute end. And you're right, John, the, the hour and 50 minutes where he's a smuggler and he's doing jobs and it's fun. Then it became Han Solo. But the first 20 minutes and the last 10 minutes, not for me. Dave, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Uh, first of all, none of these motherfuckers have credibility because they voted Mission Impossible over this entire franchise. That's true. That is so, true. You, have you seen episode? Right first, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Second of all, you don't remember the franchise because this didn't count in the franchise because this is an anthology film. Dave, buzz yourself, yeah, you dick. This not was count. not part yeah, of it. Yeah, we did not count. Also, did, okay. did you see you, eight, like, nine? You're talking about Star Wars. You didn't have. You didn't have credibility. I okay, love Rogue so, One. Rogue One's my but favorite. But no, anyway. Rogue One is amazing. Uh, that has one of my favorite droid performances ever. This has a better anyway. droid performance. This point for whatever, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, but here's here's uh, here's where this went wrong, which is not what you were expecting. Okay, Don't they me. picked the the origin story of Han Solo. In Star Wars, Han Solo had 19 minutes and 30 seconds of screen time in a two-hour movie. He's like Jesus in the New in, Testament. Yeah. In Empire Strikes In Empire Strikes Back, he had 23 minutes and 30 seconds. Holy shit, in a two-hour movie. In Whoa. Return of the Jedi, he had 17 minutes and 45 seconds in an hour, a two-hour movie. Oh my god, that's those are all now, less than I thought he was in. Now yeah, they wow. have picked that character that, despite that lack of screen time, has this enormous fucking mythology around him, and they've gone, let's do an origin story of him. Right. The expectation of that when you're making that movie is through the fucking roof and they kind of half-assed it okay all right but i'm gonna i'm gonna push back on you just a little bit the whole time i was watching and this is how i feel about the spinoffs in general anyone who listens to our franchise face off knows i'm not a huge fan of these reboots but i have had more patience for the spinoffs because at least the spinoffs aren't trying to be the original three like they, mm. they kind of know what they are However, um, the first one definitely was trying to be the original. Okay, okay sure. <laughs> and, I, and I do like Rogue Are you One. Are me? I'm right. <laughs> they they admit that. Get buzzed. <laughs> and I do like Rogue One. That is my favorite one of all of these reboots. I do think that was actually interesting. However, however. So with, much death in with Rogue all, One. There's just so many so I love many a tragedy. Died. I love a tragedy. They killed everybody. That's what you need. The only thing that didn't die was the fucking This is intel. all I think about every time I watch these spinoffs. I think we are living in an age where they have enough awareness and prowess to know this why is this movie not a limited series television thing there's no reason mm. it should have been a movie i mean the point I is totally, this, i would have been totally okay to make a billion i know but everything like, i just you saw, really want to get into it like this character has been fleshed out in a whole series of novels that they made non-canon when disney bought it and they tried to do their own thing and it's it's like yeah, but no offense. All right, but this is the this is that thing though. This is uh, and I, this I have to say this Disney though. Plus, Hold on, wait, wait, wait. I have to say this because I think everyone who feels like me about Star Wars would agree with this. I don't care about his origin story. He is one of the best supporting characters of all time in a really successful financial thing because he is a supporting character. Mm. They wrote him as a supporting character because he didn't have the other things yeah. to make him a lead character. So I mean, the funny thing is, gonna, you're not arguing with me. Like, 
I know, we're agreeing, agree. right? It was like that's why I was no, trying to. He has no fleshing out in. in that's what the, I'm saying. I was trying to screen, but but I don't know yeah. if we totally agree because I was trying to clarify whether or not you thought it was possible, or I'm saying I think it's a mistake to try to flesh out somebody who is such an iconic supporting character because there's a reason he worked as a supporting character and not your protagonist. I, don't know I feel like kinda, this entire it movie with Obi Wan. Sort of, sort of, sort of. Although mm. he's still technically in those early movies, he's not the lead. He's not the protagonist yeah. when Ewan is playing him, right? Like sh- shitty young Anakin is the protagonist and we, we fucking hate him for it, right? Yeah, I'll drink to that. All right. I think so but this whole, like, getting, getting, this, getting this whole through movie. the criticism. All right. Tell me. Getting, getting through the criticism, there are, there are like there's times when you can see elements of the Han character coming through and there's a right. there's a Absolutely. rumor that I, I yeah. don't know the truth of it there's a rumor they've got to be an time, acting coach definitely times to to make him more harrison ford like so like he learned he, he learned how great to, look. yeah he learned how to crash look. planes and stuff um so <laughs> jesus buzz yourself get out of here <laughs> this is why we need to install the we buzzer almost lost an american icon your joke is <laughs> at his expense he made 50 million dollars for force awakens you get fucking immigrant you fucking stuff Fuck out of my <laughs> John. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That joke had a wave and a reaction that I was expecting. Don't step on Harrison. Get off my plane, dude. Get the fuck out of here. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. I'm sorry. What were you saying? Yeah. Um, I'm just saying there, there are times when you can see the element of the Han character really come through and you're like, he's doing it. Yeah. And then sure. all of a sudden, Donald Glover oozes on screen. <laughs> Just owns He's it. So He's so good. good. Yeah, steals the whole fucking thing. It is unreal it's, how good it is. Glover's so good, man. He's so good. Um, here's what I will say. To, to, I'm gonna I'm gonna literally compromise you and yourself, John, because I push back and I embrace exactly what you're saying. I don't think it should be a limited series, but but as far as whether or not, look, they're they're gonna do it. They're, they're just they're gonna yeah, do it. They're gonna course, make an origin story about Han Solo. So, what Donald Glover did as Lando. Was he said, okay, let's think about the origin story of this character, and then how could I make it twice as fun as it should be? Mm. There's, it, it's his origin story is not as fun as he this, did. so let's make it more fun. And I, they just should have done that with Han Solo. They should have been willing to risk the way that they did for Logan's a bad example. There are I, other I origin like story examples where like, they basically he's, just he's gonna he's gonna get a Lando spinoff. I'm sure at some point because everybody oh, no. wants to, no, everybody no, wants to see more of that. No. All right, but hold on a second. I'm just going to call this all out because I don't think the quality of a movie should be people walking in and saying, look how good that guy is impersonating that guy from that movie 50 years ago. That's not what we're saying about Donald Glover That's Glover what we're saying. We're That's saying exactly what we're saying. Had... We're saying, look how good he is at no, playing Billy he... Dee Williams as Lando Calrissian. Well, he's playing an existing <laughs> no, he's, character. He's but playing he, a younger version of his existing character, it. and he nailed he, he's it. He's doing it in such a way that as soon as, as soon as he starts talking, you go, okay, cool. I see what he's doing with Lando. And then your idea of Billy, Billy Dee Williams goes just out the yeah. door. And you're just like, this is Lando now. And, and they never let Alden Ehrenreich do that. They never gave him the opportunity to say... He's the swashbuckling nomad fucking low bit smuggler. Let's just have some fun, just stealing some stupid hmm. shit and and grabbing some ass of some weird aliens and stuff. I think to, to you, John, <laughs> people don't need the origin story of Han Solo. You're right. They don't need it. But you know what people really want, including me? I, I would put myself in this. And Dave's the one here who's watching the, the animated series or the comic books, whatever he's doing. We're talking. <laughs> I'm talking about Davis if he's not here. Um, still here. What I want is to spend more Still time. Here. 
in the Star Wars world. I, that's the reason we love Mandalorian, hmm. even though that's too serious. I just want to live in that world. Give me Han Solo. Give me a planet. Give me some smuggling runs on some weird fucking but hoverboard I, things. But they just start throwing names of planets at you, and, and they just was also they make it a purity test. I think, and I, I think I one of the things like also that, that really threw people was this is the first time you've you've had the rogues be a prominent force in Star Wars. You've had you always had the Jedi and the Sith, so you've had your good yeah. and your bad. The rogues are like True. 50 fucking shades of gray in the middle of that. Like everyone's betraying each other. Everyone's got their own angle. And I don't think anyone really knew what to make of it in the Star Wars context. It's like we've we've had... Right, because they yeah. were all missing from episode 7, 8, 9. They were nowhere to We've be had found. a Space West and it's called Firefly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is a good example. Like the, J- Dave is referring to the Crimson Rose, which gets referenced in this movie, where if you don't know any of that origin stuff, I didn't give a fuck. Like, it was just the people in charge, which is fine, but, like, I don't care. I was still more interested in character. So their relation to that, it literally, I'm not even saying I disliked it. It just didn't matter to me at all. It was just whoever was in charge. So you're right. I, I didn't yeah. know anything I about mean, them. One of, so one of the biggest failures of this movie was they were setting up a C, uh, a franchise. Like, without a doubt. Which, you know, they, that's, I'm sorry, yeah. but, like, I felt like they were pimping like, me there's out. There's a fucking like, Darth Maul cameo reveal at the end. They were setting it's up like, a fucking franchise. Yeah. And you know what's a shame is that with... Listen up, fucking Disney. Listen to our podcast and listen to this advice I'm about to give you. Jeff is totally right. Of course we're going to go to the movie theater and of course we're going to see these fucking things. But wouldn't it be better if you didn't make me feel like you you wanted... Like, I I want to desire to go see it because the first one was so good. Not because you're making me feel like you're setting up the next one. Like, Mm. sequels work on their own when a movie is good. Anyway, I feel like we've been mostly we've been talking about like a macro perspective on this. We're we're getting kind of long on this, but I do want to zero in for a little bit and ask you guys structurally if you agree with me. This movie is really fun until they land on that fucking island. That last 35 minutes of this movie, when they make it through the maelstrom and they get to that island and every fucking scene for the rest of the movie is on that place and it feels stagnant. And I'm not I'm not. of course, I just saw Brave recently, and so I kind of liked it because Brave is pretty good. And I was like, I want more about Brave. And so that was basically my compromise. The risk of having to drink, I kind of agree with John. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I, I wanted to ask you because I feel like... At least it got clever. At least it was like a good story. You know what I mean? Like, at least that was pretty interesting. But it, it, uh, that's why I kind of wanted to get your take on it, though, because I can't quite decide how I feel about it. I know that momentum, like in terms of adrenaline as an audience member, like... You know, Star Wars is so much about travel logging. Like you're getting all, you're going all over the place in yeah. this universe, which is so much fun. And you just went through a fucking mail. We just ran the parcel run in twelve. The Kessel run. The Kessel run. The parcel run. If you round down. <laughs> yeah, no. This is why you voted Whatever, for Mission Impossible, it. where you can't remember this the names exactly of any fucking right. characters. <laughs> so the Kessel run is apparently a character in Dave's mind. John speaking parcel and, tongue from Harry Potter and Star Wars canon. So here. when you, yeah. So when you get on this fucking island, I feel like the energy of the film changes. And I'm not sure if it's a bad thing, but all the stuff that I was enjoying about this swashbuckling Han Solo... Didn't we say we liked this movie? I don't want to cut you off, John, but we we all said we liked this movie. It is good fun, but also it's a heist movie that kind of... it. I mean, I'll give you, it flounders a little bit at the end, mainly because they were basically cashing in on the reaction to seeing Darth Maul. I want Han Solo it's grabbing like you, an alien ass and just running around. And I just that's all, I, I don't need any more planets. You, I don't like, need any big you, jobs. You don't really, Give me some like small the vi- jobs. The villain, the villain is okay, but you don't really. It's okay. Okay, he's gonna beat the villain. 
whatever. But like, yes, he he's gonna live. I'm telling you, it would have yeah. been so great if they just yeah, this killed him. <laughs> oh my god! Can, could you could you imagine seeing the Twitter feed on that? <laughs> I mean, honestly, after they recast the director, they should have said, "We need a big get. We need something." Forget about the Darth Maul shit. They really thought they were gonna salvage that after they knew press was gonna. They delayed a year. Come on, just kill him. So Jeff, you did, Jeff, you didn't notice no, it. Darth Maul's back, like, you dude. Didn't, you didn't feel any, any. It did. It feels almost like a different movie when they land on that island. Like it feels different. Yeah. I was honestly, I was wondering if either of you knew. Yeah. Did Ron Howard only direct that part? No, he he. They no, reshot a he lot. Di- no, he di- he directed the uh, pretty much the original script as written. Okay, because it, it feels um, more insulated. Yeah. It feels more. Like, it doesn't matter where they are on that island. They're all very small scenes with between hmm. two or three people versus the all, all the action, obviously, all those action sequences. I don't know. I still thought with the J.J. Like Abrams script, they like still waited to film the scenes at the end, which is how the whole Palpatine thing came. Is they showed up on set and he was still willing to navigate. So I, I don't think they shot, and I, I, don't, I know they shot out of order, but I don't think they shot the last 20 minutes anywhere near the beginning of their shoot. I think even when JJ took over, he was like, there's Dave, no way we're doing that. We need to have some. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to redeem myself here. Did because, you mean Rod Dave, Howard? I think, I think, no, no. What? Cause this whole thing is on the JJ play script. He, him and Kathleen Kennedy scripted out everything. Basically. They basically pulled a Feige. And so yes, when Ron Howard came in, I mean, I don't think Miller and Lord had shot this final sequence. And I think they were going to try to salvage something at the beginning. John asked if they shot them, the, the ending mm. first and then try, no, no, I think they waited on that. So Ron Howard definitely shot the end. It feels like my it. guess. feels like it's a yeah. different movie. Anyway, I'm going to try to redeem myself here, and I'm going to ask you guys if you agree with this. Dave, I think you're right, dude. Like, um, Star Wars works, and we were talking about this in the franchise thing, because they are morality plays. And these characters are these archetypes that we have talked about before. So I think one thing that is a flaw with these spinoffs is that they try to make them character pieces. And I don't think that works. And I think the, Dave, I think you hit the anecdote by saying, talking about Crimson Dawn, if Han Solo would have been Han Solo existing in a morality play that was introducing new circumstances, I think I would have been more okay with it. And and I, I didn't dislike this movie, but I feel like they were trying to follow Han Solo, the character so religiously that they avoided going deeper with some of the new circumstances and some of the new characters around them and the criminal organizations. Mm. So I, I think it may have, it would have been more buoyant and yeah, he would have been I, more I, buoyant. I think the biggest mistake they made was they were, they were probably going to delve into the criminal ex- organization in episode two. And like, it didn't <laughs> yeah. get one because yeah. this movie it didn't get one. They're not yeah. doing it. I don't think so. Really? It, I mean, wow, this... I thought they were... Okay, I yeah. just assumed they were doing it from the way they fucking ended it. Jeff, cough. Get it out. Sorry. Get it out, bro. Yeah, no, this this <laughs> failed at the box office uh, because, you know, you have to double your budget because of marketing nowadays. But yeah, yeah it, marketing it, I, I don't think they'll... I don't think Disney will spend the money on a solo two. Although they are starting a push to try and get one made. But anyway, well, we, hopefully we, we'll have, see what we have to wrap this up. Dave. We have to wrap this up. John... I, we also did for 30 minutes to talk about it's it. It's still fun. I still, yeah, watch it. Give it a shot. It's no, it's, it's, I, I, think every, I think everybody should give it a watch. Just just give it some time. I own it. Like I've it. seen it eight times. It's fun. Don't eight don't go into it with times. a mountain of expectations and you'll have a great time. Wow. There's some fun stuff in there. Yeah, um, for sure. Anyway, Dave, tell us, what, what are we doing next week? You didn't write it down again, did you? No, I remember it very vividly, though. <laughs>
<laughs> Film year 1976. We are going to, we're going chalk this year. We're going with some of the fucking heavy hitters here. We're going with Network, which I've seen on Broadway more than I've seen in person in the movie theater, at least. I've never Sydney seen this movie. Sidney Lumet. I'm very excited Network. about it. Sidney Lumet. Three acting Oscars. Ugh. So we're going Network, and then we're going Taxi Driver. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that movie. It's called Taxi Driver. Um, it stars a guy named um, Bob Denero. 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 And then... Love him. We are going with... Love him? <laughs> and then we are going with... Um, I forget the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Stay Hungry. Hungry. Well, it's Bob Stay Hungry. It's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger film because he wasn't a star then. It's a film with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. So this is Bob Rafelson, wow. who made Five Easy Pieces, was like, let, yeah. me, let me get Arnold Schwarzenegger and see what I can do with that. We love you so much, film fans. We'll see you next week. Tip your waiters and bartenders. Go watch Hulk Solo on Disney+. Plus. Thanks for staying for our longest episode ever. Yeah! <laughs>